Lightning and Holman live from the Mojave Desert. It is Olaf 2022. That's O-L-A-F. Overlanding ass. All right, so uh, we are at the Overlanding Adventure Family <laughs> uh, encampment here right in uh, Goss, California. Uh, no, this is awesome. We uh, were invited out by our friend Rory, who uh, we will go uh, talk to you shortly. But uh, we decided it was time for an entire show out in the middle of nowhere. And we are literally out in the middle of nowhere. We're about 10 miles north of the, uh, the 40, right off the old trace of Route 66 in a little town called Goffs, which is about 40 miles west of Needles. And it's the uh, the, the front doorstep to the Mojave National Preserve and uh, a ton of awesome BLM lands. So for uh, adventuring and off-roading and history, there isn't a, a better place out here. And the uh, Mojave Desert Heritage and Cultural Association's headquarters is right here in Goffs. And you can see behind us, well, lightly, you can see behind me, yes, yes, is I the uh, restored Goff Schoolhouse, which serves as the museum. And then there's a, an amazing outdoor museum here that has all these artifacts. In fact, today you got a chance to see a real stamp mill that's like over 100 years old operating. You walk up, you're like, well, that's too dilapidated. It's running. Uh, yeah, what? Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's very cool. Uh, there's going to be a blacksmith out here. There's going to be first-class miners uh, allowing uh, people to pan for gold and learn how to pan for gold out We're going to bring you that audio for sure. So Quinn, my 16-year-old, and I were walking around uh, just before we fired up the podcast. And it's interesting. There's all these little rock trails. Well, they're not, okay, it's sand. They're rocks that make a trail. Like someone was either super-duper stoned or really bored and made all of these trails out here so you go from like little artifact area to little artifact area and it's super Let, bizarre uh, lightning it's a outdoor museum these are the pathways to guide you no 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 tour. the stuff no 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 so there's no plaques that say yes, here in 1970 no, absolutely there there's, are okay. everywhere you look there's little numbers and there's a guide that you can get from the museum that tells you exactly what those numbers correspond is that to. true yes oh man because without without the guidebook this is super random out here Nope, it's not random at all. This is this is uh, an amazing place for uh, anybody who loves history. And there's even some old cool trucks out here. If you look over there, there's actually a uh, 19, I think it's about a 1943 Willis uh, MB, which is a flat fender Jeep, a military mm-hmm. one over there. And there's all, I mean, there's all sorts of cool old cars strewn yeah. about the uh, place. Quinn was uh, crawling all over a uh, fire engine not, oh, not yeah. too long ago. Yep. Yep. the old fire engines out here. Uh, there's actually, if you uh, go this way, there's a sculpture of a crushed Volkswagen Beetle hanging up. And there's a bunch of old truck tailgates lined up one above the other. Uh, and also, there's the wing of a crashed F4 Phantom out here that was preserved and, and lives out here at the museum. So all sorts of really cool stuff to see. Did you see uh, N-A-V-Y spelled out in hubcaps on the ground? Uh, yes. Why? Why not? <laughs> but why Navy? It was a, I assume it was a... D- uh, Dennis, I believe, was in the Navy. Oh, is that true? Yeah, Dennis Casebeer, who is the founder of the MDHCA and Friends of the Mojave, and the person who uh, founded the original Mojave Road route over the old government road and mm-hmm. pinpointed it and basically put the guidebook together and opened it up for recreation. So uh, we uh, hooked MDHCA and Rory up, and we're having an awesome event out here. So there's a bunch of vendors and a bunch of interesting uh, Yeah, we, we had to and... step away from... There's, there's some music happening and some uh, libations. As uh, a word as, that I as, learned in the Matrix, as libations there should be. Yep. Uh, but yeah, there's going to be a, a full day tomorrow of guided trail tours and a bunch of history, a bunch of education, much learning, all that. I'm uh, raffles. Going to are you going to do the? Uh, are you? I'm going to Mitchell Caverns. Mm. I'm going to the caverns. I've wanted to go for years. All right, you're welcome. I hooked you up with that. Yeah. Uh, yeah, you'll be gone tomorrow, so it'll allow me to get some stuff done, which will be great. Mm-hmm. Tomorrow's going to be great. Uh, we're going to have a lot of fun and uh, talk to some of these uh, desert characters out here. We're going to talk to some of the vendors out here. Uh-huh. And You uh, know who I saw? Who? Billy Creech. 
Desert Explorer. <laughs> I, I think it's funny. He thought you did that, and so he had aimed all his hate at you. Uh huh. And then I did it live, and he goes, "It was you." Yeah. So, was, so there were some microphones and uh, speakers set up in this uh, little uh, I don't know eating area that they have. The Flywheel Cafe. And I recorded it, and it sounds like this. Again, uh, thank you. I think that's it for us up here. Yeah. Uh, now I need to get a sound bite really quick here for the podcast. So I'm going to say uh, Billy Creech, and then you guys all say Desert Explorer. <laughs> it's uh, something we do on the show. We've had Billy on the podcast a bunch of times, and we made a sound bite where it was like an old-timey explorer. It was like, Billy Creech, Desert Explorer. And he hates that. So It's you. You, you blamed <laughs> it on him. You now. That's true. You That's now true. have to. Listen. Listen. Billy's the president. If you want to look him in the eye, because otherwise you can't because he's the president, you have to address him as Billy Creech, Desert Explorer. That's the only way that you're able to talk to him. Or just Desert Explorer. Or Desert Explorer, right. So we, we need you guys real quick to say, Billy Creech, Desert Explorer. One, two, three, Billy Creech, Desert Explorer. That's the one right there. How do you feel? How do you feel about that, Billy? Important. <laughs> there you go. All right, well, before we uh, start our uh, epic weekend out here in the desert and bring you all this great content of... Uh, uh, truck adjacent stuff uh, no <laughs> wait a minute look at all the trucks out here no i know i know we're gonna have a lot of truck content okay all right i believe you i mean how many rooftop tents all of them every rooftop tent that has ever been made is right here i think all right well i'm gonna go find myself a nissan titan because uh if it weren't for all those titans that got sold we wouldn't be here on this podcast so uh kudos to our friends over at nissan who uh, just re-upped for another year with us so Woo! high five give me some five Nice. All right, so thank you, Nissan, uh, for being our presenting sponsor for uh, yet another year. Is this for? If you are, yes, it is. If you are in the market for a half ton or a midsize truck, head over to NissanUSA.com where you can check out the Titan, the Titan XD, the Frontier, and the Titans do have the industry's best warranty, five-year, 100,000 miles. Can you get a Frontier right now? Are they stocked? Are they on lots? Or do you have to I think it depends where you one. live. I've seen them, but there's not very many. Okay. It is, uh, after all, the uh, second best-selling midsize truck in America after only like six months on the market. That's what I heard from uh, uh, Sean Holman on the last episode of the Truck Show Podcast. Uh-huh. Oh, you yeah. listen to that also. <laughs> All right. Uh, also, we have to uh, thank banks. So uh, if you are in the market for a something that makes your truck feel peppy and awesome. You're talking about the Banks Pedal Monster. That's right. It's the device you can plug into your pedal to give you a crisper response and make your truck feel a lot more lively than it comes from the factory. For those of you who don't know, pedals from the factory are deadened by the manufacturer so that you're not uh, burning fuel and doing burnouts and all that stuff. You know what it's called? Banks completely ruins all that uh, strategy and lets you... Throttle enrichment delay. Right, and lets you have the throttle enrichment right now. So (laughs) uh, go to bankspower.com if you want your throttle to feel rich and your truck to feel a lot sportier than it is. Uh Oh, by the way, Banks does have them for cars as well. So uh, go to bakespower.com, and you can do your year make model and see if there's one for your application. There are hundreds of them, so my guess is... So my guess is there's probably something for you. Holman, what do you say we start the show? Should we do a uh, quality enrichment delay, or should we get right into the good stuff right now? <laughs> no, let's let's start the show, please. The Truck Show. We're going to show you what we know. We're going to answer what the truck, because truck rides with truck show we have the lifted we have the lowered and everything in between we'll talk about trucks that run on diesel and the ones that run on gasoline the truck show the truck show the truck show oh, oh. it's the truck show with your hosts lightning and holman so 
So Holman, I see a fire a brewing out in the distance, and uh, it's next to the windmill, and there's a building beneath the windmill, oh, yeah, and I like hear a, music. It's like a covered uh, area where uh, they cook called the Flywheel Cafe. Sounds like uh, our friend Rory probably has some music on. We should go catch up with him and uh, have him tell us a little bit about Olaf. It is Rory Connell. What's happening, boy? Uh, we're in the desert, and it's beautiful out. Can't complain. All right, so uh, Rory, you are the uh, proprietor of Olaf, and you are in a golf cart. So uh, Lighting and I are going to jump in the golf cart with you, and uh, you can explain to us what this is all about and what you're doing right now. Okay, sounds good. I need to grab some lights, but uh, we can do that. Hey, what? look at the thing in his ear. You look like a uh, Secret Service agent. What? Is this an like, like highbrow event? All right, so uh, Rory, tell us all about Olaf and uh, how this came to be uh, out here at the uh, lovely MDHCA uh, compound in Goss, California. So Olaf, uh, Overlanding, Overlanding Adventure Families, Overlanding Adventure Festivals. <laughs> okay, see, yeah, there you go. Uh, it really just kind of started in the wake of COVID. Uh, our local sheriff said he wasn't going to enforce any COVID laws, so we decided to have a little event in the parking lot and had a few hundred trucks show up, and then it's just grown from there and. Now we're out here in beautiful Goffs, California, uh, because- Beautiful and historic. Beautiful and historic, because Mr. Holman invited us out and said, hey, there's some really cool stuff out here, you should check it out, and right now we are driving in a golf cart to go put lights inside the Mojave Road bus. I don't think anyone's ever actually done this, so people can take pictures of it at night, all lit up uh, with their vehicles. All right, so Lightning, hold on a sec, slow down, Rory. And Lightning, you need to look Right now, on your right, what do you see? I am looking at a crushed Volkswagen Beetle. Okay, now on your left, what do you see? And I am seeing a tailgates. Truck truck tailgates. Truck tailgates that have been- International Studebaker. Shot many, many times. Right over here is the wing of an F4 uh, that crashed uh, not too far away from here. There's all sorts of cool stuff out here. Guys, part of the magic of Goffs is everything that's out here has a story. This is 104B. So lightning, though, right there is, uh, if you look, there's numbers mm-hmm. with all these outdoor exhibits, and there's a guidebook where you can uh, learn all about them. Uh, you told me that. I'm going to do that now. Okay, it is day two here in Goffs, California at the Heritage Museum. And um, I just popped out of my shift pod not long ago and met the AAA driver. Nice gentleman that helped me get into the uh, Banks 2008 Red Dually because um, we may have locked ourselves out last night. But we got back in and uh, he used a giant Slim Jim looking thing. Was able to get us back in the truck. And now we're ready to start our day. And I see Holman is off yonder. It's sad because everyone here saw the AAA guy breaking into the car, so now I'm never going to live it down. What's going on here with this lovely looking hash on your scottle, Mr. Holman? A little uh, corned beef hash for breakfast. Uh, Yes, on my uh, beloved scottle. How's this different than, say, a skillet? It's not, except for a skillet you still need a separate stove and you still have to do dishes. This, you cook everything on it. I don't need to bring extra stuff. It's pretty lightweight, and I just clean the scottle when I'm done. So, hey, aren't those the same clothes you were wearing yesterday? Um, yeah, because I was locked out of my truck and my clothes were in the truck. I'm sorry, what? <laughs> yeah, you heard that right. Wait, you locked your side? So I didn't see you I last didn't. Night. I didn't. Oh, you're going to blame it on the kid. So I didn't uh, exactly do it. Quinn went in to get in the uh, 
the passenger side, uh -huh. went to the driver's side. Now, my keys were in there, so I didn't lose now, them. Now, don't you know that you always put your keys in your pocket and roll down a window when you're out camping? No, now I do. So, look, see what, what do I have here on mine? Keys in your front right pocket. Yep, and uh, you've got a carabiner. I've got a hook, so I hook it to my jeans, uh -huh. and that way it will never be lost, uh -huh. and it'll never be left anywhere. My keys are always there. I don't ever have to worry about that. So pro tip, next time you go camping, uh, get a uh, keychain that has a carabiner or a hoop on it so you can lock it to yourself. Lesson learned. And luckily, we're only uh, 40 minutes away from uh, a AAA station. <laughs> so he uh, met me out here, wonderful gentleman, and I uh, had this uh, odd-looking stick. I didn't get, his, didn't <laughs> Did get I, his name. I didn't know. Did you interview him? No. I, how would I? I couldn't. The mics were inside the truck. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Missed opportunity. Yeah, completely. Uh, we, you know, it's not often we get to uh, uh, interview a tow truck driver in the desert who rescues uh, stranded uh, wanderers. S stranded podcast hosts. <laughs> yeah, well, he looks in there and he sees the mics because they're on the driver's seat. And he goes, oh, you guys radio guys? I said, well, sort of. Yeah, not really. Not really. Not really. No, we're, we're hash cooking, scottle burning. Well, uh, I am. You I am. are. I, was, I drank whiskey last night and... Uh, Smoked a cigar, and uh, now I gotta cleanse the palate with breakfast. <laughs> All right, I'm going to the uh, Mitchell Caverns. Okay. Very excited about that. I think it'll last, I don't know, an hour and a half, two hours. Then I'm gonna come back here to the campground. Are you gonna record for Mitchell Caverns? Uh, yeah, I'm gonna run, uh, hopefully, they'll give us a tour. I'm gonna do some recording there. I'm gonna come back. I'm gonna. It's a, it's a special tour that I got set up there. It is a special tour because I it, that Mitchell Caverns, I passed it 500 times, I think, going to Havasu, and it's always closed. It's awesome, too. Uh, oh, you've been? Yeah. All right, so we're going to go to that, and then uh, I'm going to come back here. I'm going to record one of your uh, lessons, yes, right? I'm doing a workshop on yep. uh, how to do the uh, Mojave Road. Right. Well, so I need that because clearly I don't know how to do Mojave Road, as, uh, also as evidenced last night. This track? Well, you don't even know how to do camping. No, I don't like, even know camping. Before you go out on a trail, <laughs> you should graduate from basically having your tent <laughs> in a parking lot for, you know, a couple uh, a couple nights. Am I, city, am I the city folk that you hate? No, I don't hate you. I just uh, shake my shake my head. Look, there's a bee. You want some protein? Like bee protein. Oh no, get the get the bee out of there. Oh, oh no, he's getting oh, cooked. Oh no, yeah, he's, he's, he's getting cooked on your scuttle. Well, oh, he just landed on our recorder. That's gross. Yeah, oh, I'm gonna that have to wipe that off. There's a lot of really neat rigs here, so let's talk to some of the owners and uh, and talk to them about their rigs while uh, while we're all here. I feel like we're in Gladiator City today. Jeez, how many oh, there gladiators? Are a lot of gladiators. Oh, oh, holy mackerel! There's a ton of Forerunners and uh, Tacomas too. I saw so, one Raptor and two TRXs, yeah, by there, the way. There's actually more TRXs than there are Raptors right now. And then the other thing is, uh, when you walk around, uh, it's basically Toyotas and Jeeps. Yeah. With a few oddballs. There's a couple Rams. There's an OBS Ford that's really awesome. Uh, the owner of that, Ron, has a really cool story. So, all right, lot, lots to cover today. I'm going to finish my breakfast, and then uh, i got to get to work, because i got to get photos and start getting ready for my presentation. Which portion of this is mine? Um, I can make you some if you want. That's all right. All right, good, because I didn't have any extra. <laughs> good morning. Good morning. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. All right. Experiencing the Mojave Road, hosted by Sean P. Holman, as it says on the screen. And he's got a, uh, a projector, a nice little Epson projector, in this, in this room, which I think is a replica of the original train depot here at Goff's. All right. Uh, my name is Sean Holman, and this is about experiencing the Mojave Road. So for those of you who have not experienced the Mojave Road, Give you a little brief bit of history on it. We'll talk about that. We'll talk about the things you should be thinking about and preparing to uh, go out into the desert. So, uh, who am I? 
My name is Sean Holman. I'm on the MDHCA Board of Directors. I'm a longtime automotive. Yes, sir. Can I help you? Uh, yeah, I'm wondering if you'll be uh, covering where to put your keys so you don't get locked out of your vehicle. No, we assume everybody who's made it this far has already uh, figured that out. I see. So, sorry, okay. sorry sir. All right. uh, Please continue. Thank you. All right, uh, I'm on the MDHCA Board of Directors, a longtime automotive journalist for about 25 years, content director for Motor Trends Truck and Off Road Group, I oversee Four Wheeler Magazine. Uh, co-host and co-creator of the Truck Show podcast. Uh, Woo! Thank you. The other half, uh, off-road and truck expert and avid off-road adventurer. So I think that gives me uh, good credentials to be able to uh, tell everybody about the Mojave Road. So, Whoa, where's Billy Creech? Uh, he will be up next, actually. Okay. So, so uh, we'll cover what is the Mojave Road, the Mojave Road guides, the history, uh, general planning and prep, points of interest, and then if there's any questions at the end. Uh, so what is the Mojave Road? The storied Mojave Road is a 130 mile plus historical route from the Colorado River to Barstow, California. And it's one of the preeminent overlanding routes in the United States. As you can see on the map here, it starts uh, not too far from Fort Mojave, right on the banks of the Colorado River, and traverses both BLM and uh, National Park land through the heart of the Mojave National Preserve. Uh, and there's plenty of places along the way that are interesting, uh, SEMA, uh, Marl Springs, 17 Mile Point, Zizix, uh, Camp uh, Katy, on all the way down to, uh, to Barstow there. Uh, how do you traverse and learn and, and follow? Uh, Dennis Casebeer um, was the one who did the Mojave Ra Road Guide. This is my guide from 1999, um, and it's well-worn and I think it has bourbon stains on it and uh, writing in it, and uh, this has been on the Mojave Road uh, many, many times. If you're lucky, you might find one of these original first printings of the Mojave Road Guide. You can still find them on eBay um, and Abe Books and a few other places. Uh, if you're lucky and people don't know what they're, they have, it's about $25. If you find one in pristine condition at one of the um, high-end booksellers, about $200. So, this book is pretty cool to have in your collection. So uh, this one never goes on the, in the desert with me, but it's one of those really special books to have in your book collection um, from the first printing of uh, the Mojave Road Guide. So, uh, uh, Mr. Holman, yes, sir. Is that what is that character on the on the front cover there? It's like a, is that Mickey Mouse? It's not. What is that? No, the, there, a desert rat. There's a uh, a uh, artist who did all of the illustrations. Ted Jensen, um, I believe. Right? Yep. Ted Jensen and so all of the illustrations. The guy from there. Cheers? Nope. Different guy. <laughs> oh, that's Ted Danson. Sorry. Mojave Road Guide, the latest versions, which you can buy in our bookstore today for 15% off this weekend, um, actually includes GPS coordinates. Uh, there's maps in here. There's history. Uh, everything on the Mojave Road is, is done by mileage. Uh, there are no signs on the Mojave Road, and we'll cover that here in a little bit. So uh, the guidebook is extremely helpful. So. Real quick, we'll go through the history of the Mojave Road. So the 1700s, the Mojave Indian Trail was used by Native Americans to connect the Colorado River to the coast. It was used for commerce. Um, the Mojaves were a very uh, agricultural uh, tribe and they would, like, uh, they would go out to uh, other places and trade and whatnot and that's sort of the, where the trail started. In 1776, Francisco Garces became the first person from the old world to go among the Mojaves and make use of their trails. In 1826, Jedediah Strong Smith traveled along the Mojave Road. I believe he was the very first uh, American who uh, traversed the Mojave Road, and he was later attacked by the hostile Mojaves. Uh, the Mojave Indians had a, a reputation for treachery and hostility, but they weren't always like that in the beginning. The reason I'm in quotes here is because Jedediah Strong Smith actually had a great relationship with them in the beginning, 
And when he was gone and brought people back, that relationship had changed because other white men had come and wronged the uh, Mojaves. And so his uh, group was later attacked by them and would be the first of many attacks that would earn that reputation for the Mojave Indians. In 1848, the United States acquired California, Arizona, New Mexico, Texas, and parts of Colorado, Utah, and Nevada, putting the Mojave Road in the United States. Uh, in 1853 to 54, Lieutenant Emil Weeks led an expedition along the 35th parallel to find a potential railroad route, uh, and this was the first time a wheeled vehicle was on the Mojave Road. In 1858, California pioneer Edwards Fitzgerald Beale uh, finished his work on the wagon road, declares it ready for use, and later that year, uh, immigrants who were promised this wagon road would be um, an amazing thoroughfare, and when you reached here, these Indians were welcoming, and not so much. They were, uh, they were attacked, and I think half of them were killed. So back then, it was, uh, it was a, a pretty, uh, pretty hostile environment anyway, and the Mojaves, I think, were tired of kind of the white man coming in and, and wanted to send a message. So the message back from the military in 1859 was 500 soldiers coming in to march against the Mojaves and basically establish Fort Mojave to protect the trail and uh, this was the first time a heavily loaded wagon was sent over the Mojave Road from Los Angeles to supply Fort Mojave and establish uh, the Mojave Trail's uh, viability as a wagon road. And this opened it up to commercial interests. And now that the military was involved, it was a lot safer because they were protecting the route uh, for others to travel. Uh, in the 1860s, gold was discovered to Arizona during the Civil War, and the Mojave Road became a major supply route to Arizona. Uh, with the natives resenting the incursion of the white men on their lands, they became more hostile and the army started setting up forts along the route to provide for protection to travelers, the U.S. mail, government trains. And the reason the Mojave Road was a, a great trail was because it had reliable water sources at almost in the exact distance that your horse would need. It's like every 20 miles or so, so that you could uh, stop for the day, get water, and all that. So the 1860s and 1870s were the busiest time for the Mojave Road. And uh, the other part about the Mojave Road is the higher elevations made it a lot cooler than some of the other routes that were through the desert at the time. In 1883, the Southern Pacific Railroad laid down tracks 15 to 20 miles south of Mojave Road to avoid the Providence Mountains, creating a route for wagons and eventually the automobile, causing the Mojave Road to fall out of favor for cross-desert travel. This eventually became the route for Interstate 40. Uh, 1910, homesteaders proliferated in the East Mojave, especially Lantern Valley. In 1913, the automobile road along the railroad is designated National Old Trails Road. And in 1926, this route becomes U.S. Highway 66 when the federal government creates the first national highway system. And actually right out here on Landfair Road is the original trace of Route 66. And that is, has actually been changed a few times over the years. In uh, 1906 and the 40s, various springs along the Mojave Road become vital watering holes for ranchers, prospectors, miners, and the railroad. And if you've never figured out or uh, heard of Zizix, if you've ever driven to Baker on your way, or I-15, uh, on your way to Baker, on your way to Vegas, you'll see a off-ramp, Zizix, Z-Z-Y-Z-X. Why is that significant? Well, there's a spring there. From 1944 to 1974, Dr. Curtis Howe Springer operates this as a medicinal healing place, and basically half the people think he's a snake oil salesman, and this becomes a place where celebrities go and all this stuff. The story behind it is fascinating. The fall of him is fascinating. The, the place still exists today. It's run by, I think, the, U, the UC system. But it was a, a pretty major scandal. And he, the reason it's called Zizix, Z-Z-Y-Z-X, is because he wanted to be the last word in the English dictionary. In 1975, Dennis Casebeer publishes The Mojave Road, um, which is the pre-guide 
and it provides the first comprehensive history of the Mojave Road and pinpoints the principal route from the Colorado River to Camp Katy. Um, from 1980, Friends of the Mojave, Mojave uh, Road is formed, which is the precursor to today's Mojave Desert Heritage Cultural Association. In 1981, Friends of the Mojave Road dedicated themselves to reopening the Mojave Road for recreational, educational, and inspirational purposes. 1983 to 84, Mojave Road Guys published officially opening the road. In 1990, the 660 mile East Mojave Heritage Trail is open. Uh, the significance of that was the BLM was seeing how much traffic was on the Mojave Road. It was a big hit and they said, hey, Dennis, would you be able to do some other routes in the, uh, in the desert to take pressure off Mojave Road and show people other places? So Dennis spent years mapping out a 660 mile trail. In 1994, in doing four books, which we've talked about on the, on the show before, um, the four guidebooks, there's four segments. What, what show was that? Uh, the one that you're holding the microphone that has the name on it there. Truck Show Podcast. Yes, sir. Um, in 1994, California Desert <laughs> Protection Act was signed. The MHT was abandoned because what the California Desert Protection Act did was overlay wilderness areas across much of the route and cut it up into chunks where you couldn't get around it. Um, Dennis felt betrayed by the BLM and EMHT was basically the books were removed from service, put in storage, and it languished there for, for decades. The Mojave Road also had to be rerouted in sections because of the wilderness areas. In 1997, the Friends of Mojave Road pivoted and becomes the Mojave Desert Heritage and Cultural Association. Uh, basically, the idea was, well, we, you know, all this off-road recreation and stuff that we did, it seems like we've gotten hosed by the government and we're gonna focus on you know, heritage and cultural uh, and things like that in history. Uh, today, renewed interest in overlanding and vehicle-based exploration that combines education history makes the Mojave Road a must-do for many desert explorers. And I'll have one more thing in here. The class after mine is the MHT with Billy Creech. And That's an explorer! Yes. And uh, essentially, Billy on the anniversary back in 2019 got Dennis's blessing and rerouted the Mojave Road, or excuse me, the MHT around all the wilderness areas. It's now 730 miles and there are supplements that you get with the guidebooks today, and so it's very much back in play. All right, so general planning and prep. What do you uh, need to know, and what do you need to do to go on the road? There's a bunch of disjointed uh, bullet points, so we'll just run through those, and, and if there's any questions, let me know. Mojave Desert is a harsh, isolated, unforgiving environment with extremes in weather and temperature. Be prepared. Know your capabilities and your limits. Never travel alone. Have sufficient fuel to go at least 200 miles. Carry sufficient food and water to last a week. Know what to do in case of a snake bite or other major injury. Uh, consider a satellite communicator. There is pretty robust cellular coverage along most of the route, but not everywhere. In the case of a snake bite, will you suck it out of my leg? Who got bitten? I did. Nope. No. <laughs> All right. Uh, general planning and prep continued. File a travel plan with friends and family. Let them know where you are. Do not cross Soda Lake when it's wet. Soda Lake is one of the nastiest it's the disgusting mud, it's very uh, alkaline, it will turn everything metal on your vehicle bright orange within days, you want to hose that stuff off. But the problem is, is when it is wet, there's rivers that flow in it. It's not a flat dry lake bed, there's like five foot drop offs and troughs and things like that. So you'll be driving all of a sudden there's a drop out or there's water that you think is surface water and it's really a big hole or a trench that you're going across. Also, the mud is very sticky and it sticks to everything. Like if you were to get out of your vehicle and walk across wet soda dry lake when it's not dry, you will have 15 pounds of mud as you walk across and then your feet will pull out of your shoes and you're just super hosed. So, have you done that? Uh, I've been out there when it's wet and, and I've never been stuck, but you have to be able to read the terrain and know what, what 
you're capable of, your vehicle's capable of. If it at all is dark, it means it's wet, it's best to stay off of it. Um, always keep the vehicle behind you in sight when traveling uh, with others. Use radios, again, such as uh, CB, which is sort of dead now, but uh, GMRS, VHF, or HAM. Plan to take two or three days to complete the trail, although you could do it in less time than that. But then you're not seeing anything. Well, you're definitely not seeing anything, but there are people who like to race across, but then you're doing speeds that are probably unsafe for the road for the amount of traffic. Uh, always air down, have a basic recovery kit in your vehicle, shackle straps, tire plug. Uh, you never know when the guy be, you, know, you come up to you might not have gear, or if you get stuck, somebody can pull you out with your own gear. Uh, must have a capable high clearance vehicle. True four-wheel drive is recommended, but a capable all-wheel drive car or two-wheel drive pickup with the right driver in ideal conditions can complete the trail. There's a lot of people who go out and they buy whatever their new SUV is that has all-wheel drive. That's not four-wheel drive. It doesn't have low range. There aren't many places on the trail you need a low range. There are a couple that is recommended, but uh, you should have skid plates. You should have good tires. You should have ground clearance, and you should have be able to lock it in four-wheel drive. Um, I have seen Subarus out there. Subarus have a pretty robust platform. I've seen all sorts of weird stuff. You can, just because you can doesn't mean you should. There's all sorts of things that people take out there that are probably super inappropriate, but in ideal conditions, you can make it. Uh, there are no signs on the Mojave Road, and when traversed, the correct direction is east to west. Uh, rock cairns is in this picture off to the side, or what's used for navigation. Rock cairns on the Mojave Road will always be on your right-hand side. That leads us back to the Mojave Road Guide, where the Mojave Road Guide will tell you mileage markers, cairns, intersections, all that stuff. Uh, the MDHCA has made a, uh, a great attempt to always have rock cairns within basically eyesight of each other at intersections to guide you along the way. Uh, but that's the primary way to navigate. You can also use a product like Onyx, which is fantastic for uh, navigating and also has the Mojave Road in it. Karen, C-A-I-R-N-S, and it's a pile of rocks. Yes. Okay. Uh, there are several improved campsites around the route if you prefer like hole in the wall and- Is um, it the same hole in the wall that I saw in a, in a video in the uh, nope. in Odyssey video in North nope. Hollywood? Nope. No, it's not that hole in the wall? Be aware of desert tortoises and wildlife. Uh, they're everywhere. If you know where to look, especially this is a, a bighorn sheep I captured out in Afton Canyon. Did um, you let him go? With a photo lightning. I see. Um, <laughs> there's stuff, there's owls, there's raptors, there are uh, foxes, uh, coyotes, uh, desert tortoises. The big thing about this, desert tortoises is they're protected. Always be careful, look out for them on the trail. Never pick one up, you can scare them. When you scare them, they basically pee and that's their entire water volume. If they do that, then they can dehydrate and die. So always be very careful around them. Try and wait for the tortoise to cross if you have to, but try to never touch them or, or um, bother them in any way since they are protected. Bring your own firewood. Never use uh, any wood that you find on the ground out here, especially within the preserve. Use established fire rings, which there are um, throughout. Take a moment when you're out here and soak it in. Think about the people who came before you. Think about what it was like to not have a you know, $80,000 truck with air conditioning uh, and really understand how treacherous and hazardous and demanding and hostile this environment is and realize people before you were so much tougher than you'll ever be. Uh, always yeah, pack it in, pack it up. Uh, pick up trash along the way, put it in your bag. If you see water bottles, things like that, modern trash. If you see old trash, especially cans that are 50 years old or older, those are historical artifacts, always leave that behind. Uh, and then also fix rock cairns along the way. If you see a toppled rock cairn and, and you can fix it, please take advantage of that. Sign in the mailbox logbook. 
submit a trail report to the MDHCA about any conditions that you find so that we know what the latest updates are and we can publish it. And then of course enjoy your experience. So points of interest along the way are Goffs, which we're at today, um, Fort Paiute, uh, Landfair Valley, which was a, a big homesteading uh, area with uh, homesteaders, cattle, things like that, Rock Spring, Government Hole, Marl Springs, the Petroglyphs, Mitchell Caverns, Mojave Mailbox, the Penny Can, Lava Tube, 17 Mile Point, Zizek's Afton Canyon, which is everybody has to get the uh, photo of their rigs at the mouth of the Afton Canyon uh, underneath the train trestle is uh, sort of a, a rite of passage. And then there is a, a secret message on a pile of rocks in the middle of Soto Dry Lake. The, the tradition is grab a rock somewhere on the trail, take it with you. When you get out to the rock pile, you'll see it in the middle of Soto Dry Lake. Drop a rock in the pile, enjoy the message, and don't tell anybody who hasn't been on the trail and don't ruin it for them. Lightning, any questions? Um, so the campers next to us in the Truck Show Podcast uh, campsite, they had done a water crossing recently, and uh, it was, I think, at that Afton Canyon that's, that's area. Right, right okay. Yep. And it went up to their, just beneath their hood line, the parting line between the fender and the hood. And, is, and the guy said at one point he thought the current would take him away. How do you properly gauge the, the depth of water before you engage in a water crossing, especially out here? So the Pacific, Union Pacific Railroad, I believe, they put in a bunch of rocks on the bottom of that crossing about a year ago when they were doing repairs on the bridge to get their trucks across. My understanding is they were supposed to scrape them out when they were done, but last time I was there in fall, the rocks were still there, so the river's pretty shallow at that point. I've seen the river as deep as 30 inches, um, and most vehicles don't have a water fording capability of, of 30 inches. Uh, some vehicles that do, they don't have the door seals for it, so I've seen water come in the back of back doors of vehicles. Always understand where your airbox is. Um, you will feel when it's really deep, when the river's flowing. By the way, this is one of the only places where the Mojave River flows above ground. Mojave River flows underground most of the year. This is one of the only places above ground. When you go through it, keep a steady pace. Four-wheel drive, low range recommended. Don't hammer it, don't make a big wake. Just keep your steady pace. Your bow wake will push everything away from the vehicle as you go through it. You're gonna feel your wheels grab retraction in the deeper sections. You'll feel the vehicle get light as the water wants to kind of pick it up when it's really deep. And um, you just have to kind of motor through and, and stay the course. Do not stop in the middle of it because all that water from your bow wave will come rushing back. And when it comes rushing back, it's like a wave hitting the beach. The waves are taller than sea level and it'll go right into where your intake and all that is. So you have to, it's about, I don't know, 75 yards long, something like that. So you have to be uh, committed to crossing it when you go through because you do not want to get stuck in there. So yeah, I, have, I haven't seen it up to the mirrors before. If it's that deep, I would definitely not cross it. There are other ways to get around. Thanks. You're welcome. Any other questions from anybody? For a first-time person ever doing that, besides what you already discussed, I mean, where do you start, would you say? I mean, where would you? So what it used to be is you'd go to the Avi Casino, which is uh, off Highway 95, mm -hmm. and you, you get a room for the night. As a member of the MDHCA, you're only about 30 minutes from the start of the Mojave Road. I would get out here you know, after work on a Friday, camp here, and then start early in the morning and head out to the Colorado River. You can literally, it's, it's through agricultural area, through some fields, but you drive a berm and you literally start on the banks of the Colorado River in this agricultural area. Turn around, drive out, cross the highway, and you're off to the races. Yes, sir, in the back. Uh, have you done the whole trail before? Yes. How many times? I don't know, 30. 
30? Yeah, probably. Really? Mm -hmm. All right, well, uh, thank you everybody for your time. And uh, I've Shot home at everyone. All right, so one of our uh, favorite historians and explorers is uh, standing at the podium right now. It is Billy Creech, Desert Explorer. Uh, so thank you guys for coming. So what we're going to be talking about is exploring the East Mojave Heritage Trail. Um, it is a very big route. It can be as big as you want it to be or as small as you want it to be because of the way it's segmented. It's 733 miles. It's four segments and the way those segments cross different areas you can actually break it up into even smaller weekend trips if you really wanted to so what we're going to cover today is kind of the history of it general planning stuff to do the route and the way i'm going to talk about it is to do the whole route um, and then you can segment it down from there if you want some specifics in each of the segments some of the future activities that are going on with the emht uh, some plans and then just open discussion for questions so i'm going to try to rip through this so that we have time for discussion on it because that's important. So the history of the route, you guys kind of heard some of this last night, but uh, Dennis, when he did the Mojave Road, he put a mailbox on it. And he realized really quick, because that mailbox, there's a logbook that people sign in so he could monitor the usage of the routes. So back in the 70s and early 80s, we use overlanding and tread lightly as almost marketing terms these days. You read his books from the 70s and 80s, and he's talking about overland, overlanding responsibly and treading lightly in the terrain. So they were, they were verbs and adjectives, not trademarks. So they're actually a lifestyle. And so Dennis, with the logbooks out there, he realized really quick that this single through route A to B became so popular so fast that overuse was a real concern and negative uh, ecosystem impact on the immediate areas around the Mojave Road was a legitimate concern. So he said, we need to get people into other areas of the desert, but there are no other connected routes. So he and his friends of the uh, um, Mojave Road, they launched into a very aggressive activity with creating what he called the Ivan Paul Loop. They spent seven years building this route, 660 miles, and with heavy, heavy support from BLM. There was no national parks out here then. So from 1983 to 1990, when they published the final uh, Segment 4 guidebook, seven years of constant activity. They spent seven years, Dennis spent 120 grand of his own money to publish those guidebooks. They're beautiful, they're hardbound, they're historic photos, tons of history. But we already talked about he wanted some kind of alternative to get people dispersed into the desert. He gets this thing done and he took a guy on the route who was a National Geographic photographer to talk about the route, talk about the history, the flora, the fauna. This guy was so blown away by the route that he told Dennis, he said, this thing is amazing. This thing is unbelievable, but it's so much more than Ivanpah. Why are you calling it an Ivanpah loop? He's like, it doesn't make any sense to me. This thing is bringing in so much of the Mojave heritage, you've got to call it something else. And that's where the name East Mojave Heritage Trail came from. Route gets published in 1990, the full route. 1991, Dennis starts getting wind of this pending Desert Protection Act coming. And he realizes what it could do. He goes on the offensive. 
he literally used the EMHT as his example of why this thing would be bad. This Desert Protection Act would be bad for the desert because it's cutting off access, it's cutting off recreation, it's cutting off the ability for people to actually enjoy this area. And if there's no access for people to enjoy it, they won't appreciate it. And if they don't appreciate it, it's gonna to go to crap. Because then all you're gonna be left with is people who don't care about your rules anyway, and they're gonna destroy it. That starts in 1991. Didn't work. Desert Protection Act comes in in 1994. BLM had recommended 400,000 acres. Congress took 1.6. Cuts the route, 13 places, 75 miles. The guidebooks, you hear, they're very, very precise. The maps are hand-drawn. It is to the 10th of a mile, um, and it uses geographic descriptions. So, mile 468.3, faint trail, Joshua tree with a hawk nest in it, turn right. You deviate from the route at all, the mileage is gone, and you won't know where you are. You won't know where you're supposed to turn because there's many, many things in the Mojave Desert that look like a faint trail for a while, and then you're just in the middle of nothing. So Dennis said, screw it. After so many years of his life, so much effort, um, seven years developing the route, four years fighting the Desert Protection Act, he said, I'm done. Bought this place, bought the schoolhouse, and focused on the history aspect and started building out the historical collections that, you, that we now have here. The MHT was all but abandoned, just done. So some people had the books, the, the MDHCA was formed, they had to quit selling the books. So we have a ton of inventory on most of them, not book one, but they couldn't sell them because they're not compliant. And Dennis, to his credit, did not try to recover his money to say, I'm just gonna sell the books to try to get some of my money back. He's like, no, it's not compliant, it's not responsible, put them in a storage shed. What do you mean by it's not compliant? When, when the route got cut off, right, it became, those are wilderness areas. So the wilderness areas, you cannot take any mechanized advantage inside of. So you can't take a car, motorcycle, bicycle, bicycle nothing. You, you can take a horse, you can take your feet. You can take a camel, but you cannot take anything that's man-made. So even BLM, when, when I was trying to locate something, and I said, can I get permission to go out there because I think this thing is drawing people into a restricted area and I, need, I wanna go see, because I think it's still there. I wanna go get it and, and move it out. They're like, we'll have to get a helicopter, hover over and see, because you can't even land the helicopter to get out, right? It's that restrictive. The guidebooks would lead you into now restricted areas if you're following the directions. So that's why they're non-compliant. This is 1994. It's a done deal. So in early 2017, I was doing some research on a map uh, for another trip, and I saw a reference to something that said EMHT on it. Didn't know what it was, so literally on my map, I wrote EMHT with a question mark and circled it. Didn't know what it was, but I was researching something else, so I didn't pay it any mind. Then in early 2018, a buddy of mine was out exploring out here, and he posted a picture on Facebook. I just happened to be on Facebook at the time. The picture pops up and it's this mailbox that looks just like the one on Mojave Road, but I instantly knew it wasn't Mojave Road. I, I zoom in on this picture and on the mailbox it says, East Mojave Heritage Trail Box 2. It's like, wait a minute, where have I seen that before? I dug out my map, I looked and went, holy crap, this thing is real. This is something because there's a mailbox. So that started the research for real. So that started, research early 2018 all the way to May of 2019. 
So a year and a half of solid research. I found a set of the books at a library in Prem. They were brand new, still in a box. Read them, reread them, reread them, started taking notes, reread them probably 10 times. Started marking stuff on the map, but then started finding, okay, this route has been so de defunct for so long, there's areas on the map where there are no trails listed, there's no nothing, it's just blank space. And then it's such a big route, there was no single map that existed to cover it that I could find. So I called Dennis and it was the first time I had ever talked to him. So I called Dennis and, and told him that, hey, this is who I am and your route. He's like, yeah. And I said, uh, I, I think I could remap this thing. I wanna, I wanna make a run at remapping this thing and making it compliant. Do you have a map that shows the whole route? He said, no, I don't have anything like that. So I said, okay. So I made my own, I should have brought it. Um, but in each of the books, there are summary maps that show the full route for that segment. This is the full map for this segment that this book covers. And each of these squares are individual detail maps with the corresponding page numbers in the book. So I took the, each of these maps out of each of the four books, copied them, but none of them are to the same scale. So then I had to figure out the scaling and it was like being in kindergarten. It was like cut, paste, highlight, cut out where it overlaps, all that stuff to make my own map. And then I could see the full scale and scope of this thing and it is massive. I mapped this thing out, figured out, I start working with BLM and national parks uh, early on to say, this is what I'm doing. It's a win for recreationists. It's a win for the environment to get people off of Mojave Road, give them, give them an alternative. It's a win for the agencies to not have to shut down things because we're helping you get people and disperse them into other areas. So now full support of everybody and it's the new route of 733 miles versus the original 660. But I made some choices that Dennis would not have made, but I cleared all of them with him before I solidified them. And that is back when Dennis was doing this, he was trying to attract people from the southwestern US, right? The 70s and 80s, he was going after that group of people. This modern exploration is more global, right? It's, it's you're, you're attracting people from Europe, from Australia, from all over, and people coming from long distances across the US to explore this region, predominantly Mojave Road, because that's what's been marketed, that's what they know. Dennis was like trying to keep everybody as far away from civilization as he could. Whereas there's some really cool stuff out here that's part of our heritage, Route 66. Amboy, Amboy Crater, Hole in the Wall, Mitchell Caverns, uh, Providence Ghost Town, all those kind of things that I steered the route to. In some cases I had to, but in other cases I was like, if somebody's coming from Europe, why put them on a dirt trail that's literally 200 feet off of Route 66 for eight miles? Is eight miles of pavement a big deal on a 733 mile route? Not really, but they can say they drove on Route 66, that kind of thing. So I made some choices like that to really bring in more of the heritage of the area. Dennis fully agreed with it, fully supported it. I would not have done it if he didn't because it's his route and I completely respect that. I just, I'm just the guy that brought it back. So that's the route, it's been published, it's being used. So this route, to give you guys an idea of the usage of it, more people do the Mojave Road in a month than have, done the than have done the East Mojave Heritage Trail in the last 30 years. Wow. This route gets really remote and no help is coming. 
So this one survivability comes into play. Repairability, recoverability on your own, self-sufficiency is a really big deal on this route versus the Mojave Road. If you get into trouble, typically somebody's coming by within a couple hours unless you're out there in mid-August. Then it could be a while. Billy Creech! Desert Explorer! All right, Holman, I'm off to Mitchell Caverns and you're going to head up north on the campground here to some stamp mills, correct? Yep, so there's the uh, gyratory, uh, we've got the uh, two stamp mill, we've got the American Boy 10 stamp mill here, and so uh, that number refers to how many basically crushing cans they have. Um, and so 10 stamps means that there's 10, think about it as you know, an upside down piston, if you will, that's what's crushing the ore. So uh, a little bit windy, try to do my best and I'll get some, uh, some audio, but uh, should be pretty awesome. Hopefully we can insert that audio right here. I think we're here with uh, my new best friend. Well, I'm just meeting him for the first time, but I have a feeling we, we share a deep bond, a love of mines. You're talking about uh, Larry Redenberg, who uh, is on the board of directors at the MDHCA with me? That's it. <laughs> I, I love mines, and I'm on the board here, yeah. Lots loves of... big mines, and he cannot lie. <laughs> <laughs> now, is he the one that was running the stamp mills that you so uh, videotaped not he, long ago? He was giving the overview to the crowd of the history of right. each one, what to uh, look for, what to expect. And uh, it was really awesome. Uh, we've got the American Boy 10 stamp mill out here. We've got the crusher out here and uh, the gyratory. Gyratory crusher. Yeah. Which is awesome. So if you guys can imagine, a stamp mill looks like a piston engined uh, <laughs> from a, a four-cylinder, in this case a 10-cylinder, and the pistons come down and instead of igniting with fuel, they crush rocks. That's kind of like visually. But the gyratory is like this giant cone with like a bowl on the bottom that sort of swings at an angle and circles and crushes things. And it's, I've never seen one uh, like that. That was yeah. really interesting. No, it's the only one operating in the whole world, apparently right here. And there's only one known to exist that doesn't operate in Arizona. So your history with MDHCA and then prior to that, Friends of the Mojave Road, all started when you had reached out to Dennis Casebeer and you formed a, a basically a relationship and then a friendship with him over the years and kind of morphed in what you're doing today. But you've written books, you were a geologist. I guess you still are a geologist. In a way, yeah. <laughs> and also a cartographer. I was doing that for 20 years. That's a map maker. Yep. Right. Holy In fact, map. I saw him earlier today in the archives and he was showing me all these great maps and uh, we were looking at uh, all sorts of cool stuff. So yep. uh, Goff's MDHC has the largest uh, desert Eastern Mojave desert archives in the world and in the buildings here. And it's just unbelievable when you get a chance to see what's out there. And Larry's back there working and uh, we're looking at cool stuff. 
So, Larry, what's the fascination with, with mines and mining equipment? Were you, you weren't in the mining industry, though, were you? No. If you start to the very beginning, I think what it was is my dad was always into trains, and he bought a book about railroads of the eastern Mojave Desert. And I was probably 12 years old, and we would trace these trains. And it turns out that most the railroads out here served mines. From there, you know, I'd go out with buddies. This was before I could drive, and Dad would take us out to these old mines, and we'd go underground and poke around, and uh, it was two things. I'd pick up cool-looking rocks. I'd take them over to the rock shop, say, hey, what's this? And the other half was, I wanted to know what the history is behind this. And so I started at age 12 or whatever it was, going to the library in Long Beach and uh, digging up these old state reports on mining. And I, I had a little journal going of all the mines in the San Bernardino County. And, and so the, I just got in my blood. I don't know. Was it something about you going underground? You like the history of or it? Or did you, you like, just like the rocks? Uh, all of it. See, it all came together. The history, the rocks, or the geology, and got to make a map of it. So, you know, I eventually uh, getting a degree in geology, and then 1978 went to work for the Bureau of Land Management on the desert plan staff. I was working exclusively out in the, the whole desert from Mexico to Bishop, basically. Wow. And uh, we... At that time, we did reports on the mineral potential of mining, mining districts or mountain ranges. And what was your uh, work vehicle back then? I had a Dodge Ram. And did you ever have did mechanical I, issues? Did I or? tell you this? Story no, now. no. But I'm, <laughs> I'm, this going? I'm thinking about this back in you know the, the the 70s and 80s, and and you're out in the most remote, way more remote than today, because you know civilization has encroached on the desert and. You're way further out then, but you're in old, unreliable 80s vehicles. So, yeah, I had a <laughs> fun little trip. All right. Uh, uh, you, got, you guys can't see the expression on his face, but he's, uh, he's couching this. <laughs> yeah, this so, is no, no, it was just hair raising. So I went across by myself and the southern end of the Panama, up Golar Gulch, uh-huh. all the way down to Death Valley. And on my way down, it starts making this weird sound. And I knew cars. I had been working on my own cars for years, and I knew something was wrong. And so I look underneath, all the suspension and everything looks fine. Everything looked fine. But as I'm going on this washboardy road, it's just making a horrible noise. Finally, I get down to where on pavement, and it went away. It just, hey, it must be all right. All it must right, be all yeah. right, yeah. Self healing so, car. <laughs> so I was camped out at uh, Wild Rose Campground in a little government trailer. I, was work, I worked from August until December of 78, uh, tromping around the Panama and Argus Ranges. They gave me, you know, the keys to a car and said, go look at mines. And- uh, It's your greatest job ever. No, You missed your calling. You missed your calling. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And so- Go look at mines. Here's the keys to a Dodge Ram. It may or may not get you there. Yeah, well. Or get back. Or get back, back, as the case is. So I was- Were you going, okay, we'll finish the Ram story. Here's the Ram story. So I go up to the Radcliffe mine, and I'm heading down a steep one lane uh, road. And fortunately, this was a, a stick shift. Okay. And so, all of a sudden, I step on the brakes, and there's absolutely no brakes. Oh. And so I turn off the key, put it in gear, 
and put on the emergency brake and realize that all my brake fluid's on the ground. And what happened was that there was a broken frame and it, it severed oh, a brake line. And the frame cracked. Yeah, yeah. And so I put it in reverse and I inched my way down that road until finally the tow truck could get to me. <laughs> so that was my more one of my most exciting vehicle story. And hair raising. Yes. You were probably going into mines that had long since closed, I would assume. And were you dropping down, rappelling into mines, that type of thing? Or just standing at the mouth going, well, that looks scary. I'm not going in there. And what was the plan with each each mine? It w- I'd never be rappelling into anything. And usually I would be in a horizontal added or tunnel. And, uh, you know, I, I did get back into one, though. I could tell there was bad air and I, t- I tailed it out of there. And uh, yeah, that's the thing about walking in mine. So I've been all over the Mojave out around Randsburg, Red Mountain, Johannesburg. And, and back in my teens, we would winch ourselves off the winch in the truck and lower ourselves or rappel down and we'd walk around. You can always feel fresh air blowing. There's always wind blowing in these mines. And when that wind stops and the air stale, get the hell out. Yeah. I have to say that the BLM kind of learned their ways and now you've got to go through a whole training session of mine safety before you go underground. Oh, that wasn't the case in 1980 or whenever this was. Since then, I've done a lot of work underground with doing actual, more rigorous testing of the mine, sampling of the mine for like a patent exam. And so we would always go with all the PPE and all that kind of stuff. So myself and usually another, another geologist, we would always be in, together too. It wouldn't be by yourself. Did you make any discoveries that you, were, that you would have liked to have kept quiet but you had to share or with the BLM? are there any rocks that have your name on it? Mm-hmm. Is there like Larianite or well, something my, like that? My, my, my question first. Okay. Yes. Larry and I, you just said. No, no, no. My, no, no. <laughs> so a friend of mine, Al Wilkins, no? who's a rock hound, he found a mineral that had never been discovered before, and it's called Wilkins, uh, Wilkinsonite. Okay, so my last name is Vredenberg, mm-hmm. and there is a mineral called Vredenbergite. It's out See? Of, it comes, you thought I was stupid. It comes from India, and <laughs> I, it has manganese in it or something. I don't, I don't remember what it is. But as far as the best discovery, I tell you, I helped out a a Forest Service geologist up in the Grass Valley area, it's actually Yuba River, and there was a bench that the old timers had never mined, and it was being mined. Would you call it a bench? What, yeah. is, what is that? Think of a uh, river, mm-hmm. and as the river uh, deposits gravels along the side during a flood, and uh, so those benches get cut as the river continues its process of cutting and, and sorting and all the things the river does. So there's this this chunk of gravel that's recent gravel, not ancient gravel, that's sitting up against the Yuba River, and this company is mining it, and they want to get patent under the old the mining law. And so I he said, hey, Larry, you want to come help? So I did, and it was with Nugget Society, your thumbnail. You know, oh, my wow. I got, I got the chance to pan this stuff out, you know, and that was kind of the coolest thing ever. Doesn't require much panning. No, it, you know they used, There is a town up in the middle of the road called Growlersburg. And the idea was that the nuggets would growl as you pan <laughs> in the bottom of your pan. 
make so much noise. That's awesome. All right, well, thanks for your time. We got to go mosey down the road, but if uh, you guys are, are looking for some of, there's lots of documentation. Larry Vredenberg, look it up, uh, his name up on Google, and there's all sorts of stuff that comes up. Amazon, what's the, what's the Amazon uh, link or the, uh, the book we're looking for? Desert Fever. Desert fever. fever. Okay, and is Amazon now? It's you can find it there, or, or just just Google any, it. any yeah, yeah, yeah use book like a yeah, a books is a good yeah. place for it. But yeah, it's uh, it's uh, rare, so two hundred bucks. Well, you're doing the Lord's work out here, so thank, thank you. you, thank you, <laughs> I appreciate it. All right, Holman, you seem to know quite a bit about this gentleman. Explains it to me. All right, so uh, Rick Nesbitt's on the uh, board of directors with me, and if you look right between these trees over here, you'll see a 1934. Ford pickup truck. Oh, yeah, I saw that. It's beautiful. Did you see it running? No, it runs. Uh, did you see the V8 in it? Old original Ford flathead? What? V8. Who yeah. put who in the what now? All right, so the story behind the truck is really cool because I was talking to Rick about it yesterday because obviously old truck driving around in the desert is the things little, that just, you know, little different. make me happy. And he told me the story. I'm like, well, why am I not recording this? Because we need it for the podcast because somewhere out there somebody is going to appreciate it. So uh, it's pretty much uh, stock and it's got 12-volt conversion. Fires up like a modern car, and it sounds exactly like a sewing machine. I got video of it that we can play here in a minute. Um, I was going to try and fool you on Know Your Note, but we'll just make it part of this interview. So, Rick, if you want to tell us about the history of that thing, because it's, it's a pretty cool story. Yeah, the guy that, that bought it new in 1934 owned uh, the service station on uh, Route 66 at Mountain Springs Road, and it was his service truck, and it spent its whole life out here. Uh, changed hands a couple of times, but... I'm actually the second registered owner of that truck. How awesome is that? Oh 1934. Yeah. And he's the second registered. Oh, owner. it's it's also a, a numbers matching motor to frame. Everything is. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Well, you don't find a truck that old with the with the original engine in it. So you had told me that this truck. So obviously, what's special is we're out here at Goffs. This truck lived its life in the desert, for the service station and the guy running around the desert trails yeah. and, and all that stuff. He was in the, one of the original overlanders out here. I guess that's, <laughs> I guess that's right, huh? And that, it's a it's a basically a, a old two-wheel drive truck, and he went everywhere. Yeah. It's, like, it's funny when you see, like, the old Model T guys, and they're just out there, and you get to see the videos, like the, the old muddy trails, and they're yeah, big, the tall, guys are, pizza cutters, you know? Yeah, sitting out there with their shovel, <laughs> axle deep. Yeah, it's, it's pretty cool. All right, so... Uh, you said the the truck had been restored at some point and then like left to rot for 15 years. Or? Yeah, it, it uh, Dennis Caseberry ended up with it and had it restored, and then nobody ever really drove it. It just sat out behind his house, and uh, I just got tired of seeing it rotting away. <laughs> and so I I bought it from. Uh, well, Dennis made a deal with uh, another guy out here, and he never drove it. He had no interest in it. So I ended up buying it from him and took it home and fired it up. So how long did it take you to get it running? What did you have to do to, to get it fired up? I flushed out the, the fuel system. Of course, put a new 6-volt battery in yep. it because it was still 6 volts at a time. Fired it up and uh, just about pissed myself when I did when that. When you heard how damn sweet that thing <laughs> sounded? Yeah. You're like, oh, my God, I, I have a flathead V8 running in my yeah. driveway. Yeah. I fired it up. The wife come home from work, and I passed her on the street going the other way <laughs> <laughs> and she's like oh he got it going i hope he doesn't kill himself <laughs> yeah. do you have brakes i have brakes what's your plans for it what do you do with it now and how much do you drive it actually just tow it out here and and drive it around i let my uh well, one of the first people to drive it was my uh eight-year-old grandson <laughs> awesome he thought that's grandpa cool. ever yeah yeah he drives everything i have so is this thing registered 
for yeah. the street? Yeah, I've got a hist uh, historical license plate on it. It's completely street legal. Once I went to 12 volt, then I hooked all the lights up, and it's a street legal car. Nice. That's awesome. So can we go for a ride, or is this, you're the only one that got to see it, Holman? I mean, you can see it. It's right yeah, there. I see it. I see it right here. I'm looking Rick at it. He doesn't like you that much. Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. he doesn't even know me. <laughs> That's why he doesn't like you. <laughs> oh, you I, can ride in the back. Well, that's better than nothing. <laughs> that's the first start today. <laughs> so, so do the math. What is that? Is it um, so 34 from 22? Is that 90, uh, 92 years old? Yeah. So that 92-year-old engine started better than what you're driving. My 07 Ram? Yep. Yeah, for sure. better than my truck does. <laughs> Honestly, to it, it just purrs. Honestly, if I had this vehicle, it would just be for party tricks. I would only go to find my friends having car trouble and just start it up next to them. That'd be that'd be my whole purpose oh, in life. You tow them, tow them. <laughs> what a treat! Thanks, Rick. That was awesome. So we are here with the lovely Erica, who is a TRX owner, mother effing. Hold on a sec. What? She had a big, crazy Tundra that had like all these stripes on it, and then she forsake the Toyota people and then got the TRX. The only reason you're talking to her now is because she got her TRX before you got yours. That's not true at all. That's not Erica, when did we meet when you had your Tundra? Yeah, when we had the Tundra. Exactly. And then you ignored her. No, and what now are you that she has the TRX, oh my God, I want to be your best friend. Does we were, same we interior were best I buddies on. No, she was what mirrors get do you have? Oh. I ordered mine with trailer mirrors because I'm dumb. <laughs> No, honestly, it, it's been uh, it's been great getting to know you guys. It's been it's been fun. Yeah, you're good. She's lying right through She's her teeth lying. right now. You totally know, not. You know totally what Erica not. is? Erica is a lying liar that lies. Yeah, I know, I know. It's the hair. And you know what? You know what hair. she does when she's done lying? She lies some she more. She lies some more. Yeah. <laughs> Tell us about the swab. You were the Tundra girl, like you just I think, and I don't know. I know you've owned a lot of off-road vehicles, yeah, right? Yeah. And you've also got a, a Jeep 398 and a bunch of other 392. Cool stuff. 392. That's what yeah, I meant. Yeah. It's been one too many beers. <laughs> and the guys in the forums and the groups they knew you for the Tundra. You were very outspoken. You try parts before other people. You break things. You're like, do this, don't do that, because I broke that. This one lasts. You got a, re a lot of really good input. And then, like you said, you were a turncoat and you went to a TRX. <laughs> what was that transition like? You know, honestly, it, it was a surprise. I mean, both of the vehicles have great pros and cons. It, it's just a different beast. It's just a different beast, but it is a beast. And I don't feel bad about it at all. Like, I wish I'm I knew okay what it, it was like to drive a TRX every day. You had one for a year, you dumbass. Oh, I still have one. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. It's my daily driver, and uh, I mean, it's a pain to park, but other than that. Yeah, but the cameras help good. with that. They do. They yeah. do. That 360 camera is it's amazing. Awesome. Yeah, it God view on so there. so amazing. I don't think it's yeah. that bad to park. I just think that other people park so bad. It's like when you're a TRX, you just have to nail it. You get it perfect between the lines, you're good. But right. when that one a-hole comes in and you're like, I came in open my door, now I have to door ding you. Right, right. Now, Not that I would ever do that. Take us back to the Tundra and then we'll get into this TRX. The Tundra, what 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 was the impetus for that? Like what the color scheme, the lift, you did you had a lot of mods on that truck. You know, my, my goal was uh, we do a lot of off-roading. We do rock crawling. Um, we're in the desert all the time. And my goal was to have something that was comfortable to drive on the road as my daily and something that I could immediately just take straight into the dirt and have it do exactly what I wanted it to do. 
and and that's that's what I was able to achieve. And in, in your color combo, like it had a red and an orange stripe on a blue truck. What was? Yeah, so those are the uh, the retro um, Toyota colors, and I kind of wanted to make it like a little bit of a retro tribute to to Toyota. And you know, those colors just look great on blue anyway. But yeah, I I got with um, Nick Daly. Uh, what is it? Daily Visual Visual. Oh, Josh Daly. Yeah, Josh. Oh, Josh Daly. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Josh Daly. And um, I was like, hey, I have this idea. Can you can you bring it to life for me? And he was like, yes, that is a great idea. And then you had it tuned and you did a bunch of stuff to it. And then right when you got it running how you wanted it to run, you sold it. You swapped it. I swapped it. Yep, yep. It was kind of one of those, all right, it's a great, great truck, but I have an opportunity to get a different truck. And it's been weird because I know so much about the Tundra. I know so much about Toyota and and exactly how everything works, and this is just a completely different well, beast. Nobody so knows like, about the TRX either right now. Right, right? like the aftermarket right. still catching up. It's like starting all over from scratch, and I'm having to relearn everything. And um, it's it's fun. It's fun. I like it. And so tell us what you've done to this TRX. This is a 21. Correct? 21. Yeah, and I haven't done much actually. It's not true at all. <laughs> you have done some stuff. First off, what what is now. the blue color? Hydro Blue. Um, we actually got it used, so it came with every package that I wanted on it, which was fantastic. Um, and so you paid $170,000 for it because that's what they go for used right now? Right. Yeah. Yeah. I, I sold my left toe. Um, well, that's weird. You only have uh, four toes. I know, but you know what? It works. <laughs> Who needs a toe? And why would they spend so much money for one? <laughs> right? Exactly. You'd be surprised. But no, I put a, a custom rear bumper on it from Evil Manufacturing. They built it for me from scratch. and my concept and they brought it to life it looks great um other and and, and why so the see look i mean we all change bumpers but <laughs> but why what, what did you dislike about the factory bumper um so there was there was a trailer incident oh i saw that yes that was your husband correct it was it was yeah yeah he uh he jackknifed the trailer um bashed in the uh huh, rear bumper like. <laughs> And then when he straightened out, he just ripped that bumper into like a nice 90 degree angle. And I'm like, oh, sweet, new bumper. Yeah. <laughs> so he foot the bill. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. <laughs> but I mean, I would have gone with a high clearance bumper anyway, just just because. Yeah. Yeah, so we did that. And then I um, got the third brake light, the chase light from Evil Manufacturing as well with the, uh, the antenna mount for the radio inside, Midland 500 radio inside. And the uh, the taser. That's that's about it so far. What'd you do with the taser? Raise the speed limiter? Which... No, no, no. The taser is more of a programmer, so it um it, it, just... it should raise the speed limiter. Yeah, I think, there's all sorts of stuff it does. It, yeah. yeah, there's. I mean, I have 17 pages of stuff yeah, in it's, the it's, truck. It's that crazy it how does. much you can do with those now. It is. It's like witchcraft. It's nuts. But yeah, that's that's about it so far. Engine engine is stock. Engine is stock. Everything Why would else you need is pretty more? much stock. Right? No, don't need more. But uh, apparently, I now have a super winch sitting in the back seat. Oh yeah, the raffle. Uh, yeah, the uh, the yep. super winch in a box. Yep, yep. I'm super excited to have so that. She was me. cooking meals for everybody very graciously, wonderful tacos and such last night. And then she's behind uh, the the table and they and they call her number and she's like, oh my god. She was talking to her friends like, I need a winch. Like that'd be cool to have a winch. It's like as if you the universe right? listen. Right. I'm like, I just want the winch. Just let me get the All winch. Right. Uh, last question. What advice or what would you say to a potential TRX buyer who is salivating at the idea that their custom ordered truck might be here sometime in the next year? Whew, I don't know. Just just hang in there. Just hang in there. So you're talking to me. Saying, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. It's coming. Is it worth it's the coming wait? Eventually. Yeah. 
<laughs> yeah, it's it's totally worth the wait. I mean, I see people on the forums like buying them and flipping them all the time, and I'm like, why? Why would you do that? This is an amazing vehicle. I mean, so far, I haven't had any issues. I know there's been a lot of people that have had issues, but, you know, that's what the warranty's for. So Go have fun. Yeah. Yeah, yeah go have Stop fun. Stop worrying about lightning. Yeah. I, I, what are you talking about? I'm not worried about it at all. All right. I mean, well, you can borrow mine whenever, you know. Yes. Hug me. <laughs> Holman, I'd like you to meet my neighbor, my camping buddy. This uh, is Ron right I, here. I know your camping buddy. Oh, do you? Yeah, I do. <laughs> Known for about 15 years. <laughs> yeah, we, we go back. Thereabouts. We're standing next to a Cherry F-250. Power Stroke OBS. Yep. Yeah. And uh, I want you to tell us about this rig. 95, 96? 97. Oh, the last year. I bought it brand new in August of 98. Wow. Everyone at the, I happened to see it, everyone at the dealership was staring at the new Super Duty one. Yep. And I go, what about that one out there by the sidewalk? And they, you want that? <laughs> I go, yeah. Bought did it, you, put a camper on it. And... Did you know at the time that you were buying a modern classic? No. No, I just, everything new is always ugly to me. It yeah. takes me a year or two to get used to it. And like, okay, now I can like that. So I wanted the old one. But uh, but brand new, and there was a handful left. And how many times have you have you repainted this? Never. What? Never. Liar. No, I kept coats of wax on it. And do you and feel uh, guilty for lying about this? <laughs> no, it's really? it's original paint. The sides look good. If you look on the hood and the roof, the clear coat's gone bad. Okay. It, it everything on top has gone bad. The bed rails and all that, but the sides, yeah, they stayed shiny. So this is a uh, super cab long bed, and you've got a slide in camper. And a, a Lance, by the way, which is a very nice sliding camper. Local. They're in Lancaster. So, yep. And well-built. And how long did you run the truck before you bought the camper? Uh, well, I had two previous campers, the used ones. It was only a year or so when I, I put a camper on it and we got quads and stuff to go riding in the desert with the kids. But the truck was always my daily driver. Take the camper off, leave it in the driveway, and it drove. It's got 230000 on it now. How many Banks products are endowed on this vehicle? <laughs> I started with the Stinger kit, which okay. is just the chip and the gauges and the downpipe, and uh, later upgraded to, it was a turbo housing and added the, the brake, the exhaust brake. Yep. God, maybe 10 years ago or so, I finally did the intercooler because it didn't have one at all, this old truck, yeah. and I always had exhaust temperature problems, so I finally, like, well, I, and I wish I'd done it in the beginning. I should have just went to the full power pack, I think they call it, from the beginning, but yep. once they did that, it was night and day difference. Will you ever sell this truck? No. My kids fight over who gets it when I die. My <laughs> wife goes, well, what about me? <laughs> yeah. And you're like, hey, she by goes, the way, I'm not dead yet. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> but everything looks just so damn good on this. Have you ever been in any accidents or anything? No. It's got ding and dent here. A kid egged it once. There's paint strip from an egg. <laughs> a kid egged it once. Is he dead? The kid. No, it was middle of the night. I don't know. Um, I came out in the morning and the paint's scratched. And Also, if you're imagining this truck, it is a... Uh, a pretty metallic kind of a uh, ruby red and it's got the alcoas on it which the alcoas yep. for these years are are clutch that was a that was a big deal you could get the same wheel manufacturers the semi trucks on yep. the fords of that i did that not era. know that that was factory yeah yeah those those came on it those are all and original. this one's a two-wheel drive yeah it's just two-wheel drive automatic people said be lucky to get fifty thousand out of the transmission and about one hundred and eleven thousand at started doing weird things so i had it rebuilt and and built so never had a problem since that's the other the trans command man it's like an electronic shift kit for it made a big difference 
You're like a walking banks commercial. Yeah. But there's no sticker on the side of the I damn know, truck. No, but your, your bank's logo on your truck is reflecting in the side of his. So if we were to take oh, a picture right go. now, it would have banks. I, I used to on. have one on the camper back here, and I had one in the back window for years. Right, I didn't well. I didn't put the side ones on, but I had it in the back window, but they aged out, and I had to scrape well, them I'm going to send you a new emblem. So we yeah, got away from the did. stickers, and now they're big chrome emblems that look OE. Oh, okay. you'll like those. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. What else are you going to send so. in lightning? <laughs> I, I think he has everything we make. <laughs> yeah. Tell us yeah. the uh, most hair-raising adventure you've had in this so far, with uh, the either with or without the camper. Oh, with the camper and the trailer dirt bikes, we were at El Mirage, and it started raining, and the ranger came out, and you've got to get off the lake bed now. They don't allow that. And I'm like, I always drive. We are at the far end. I always drive the lake bed Yeah. because it's two-wheel drive. He goes, no, you got to take the outer trail and get around. Uh-huh. And that was, a, you know, come on, kids, strap in because, uh, you know, we hit those little dips with water in them, yeah. and I don't have four-wheel drive. I go, I've got, I've got to take it at speed, you know. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, we had to get out of there. Yeah, hanging on, dishes flying, you know. <laughs> How yeah. was uh, Lightning as a camping neighbor? Very quiet. It was great. Is that because so- he was locked out of his truck and had to go elsewhere? <laughs> <laughs> Or is that because you were in a camper and he was in a tent and you didn't care what kind of noise <laughs> right, he made? I shut the door and I didn't hear him. <laughs> some good insulation in this in this land. Yeah, I'm a real dedicated uh, overlander here, yeah. bringing the camper and just staying in camp all weekend. <laughs> Did you hear the people to the other side? They were just on the other side of Holman. Uh, they yeah. were making babies all night. I didn't hear that. So I, yeah. I heard squeaking, but I didn't know if it was the wind or what. Lightning says he heard more than that, but I was right. I like to sleep. All right, so early in the evening, they were uh, the the... Girlfriend, boyfriend, husband, wife, don't know. Mm-hmm. They were screaming obscenities at each other. They were fighting. Well, more Whoa. she was yelling at him. Okay. Well, she I, was, I was over there for I a know long time you, drinking, so yes, I didn't hear anything. I know of that. you weren't there because I came over to see why you weren't pissed off. Yeah, because I wasn't around. I understand that. And I went to your, and I looked in. You had all your little uh, red LEDs on, yep. and your door was open. Because that's how find my tent at night when I'm yep. uh, whiskey. Blastered. Yep. And, yep. and I figured you were, you were with Billy <laughs> Creech, Desert Explorer, right? <laughs> drinking uh, drinking the booze with the uh, board of directors uh, fun group. So Okay, so you were there, and yep. I walk over, and I'm like, how does he not hear this, and you're not there? Which yep. explained the, because the, I figured you'd go break up whatever this domestic you know issue was. Like I did at Olaf in, uh, but, uh, <laughs> in Big Bear. Yeah, but, oh. but eventually it ended. And then I thought, okay, it's finally quiet again. And then an hour and a half later, I don't know, this is probably 1.30 in the morning. And now they're going at it. So now it's it's So it's they're making up? Sex. They're making up? It's yeah. makeup sex. And she's making noise. All, all, and I was all, bummed. And All I, it, I know is that I had enough whiskey in me where none of that bothered me. Exactly. I was, like, say, I was well lubricated yeah, from the campfire. Awesome. And I staggered back here and I was out. Yeah, I, 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 haven't, I haven't had a drop of alcohol. No, so I had half a beer on Friday afternoon. That's it. And I was wide awake. And it took me another 90 minutes to go back to sleep. Damn. Oh, my Lord. And they went at it a couple of times. Like, she... she she wrapped up, they must be and young. then they did it again, and I'm like, oh, seriously. So this is like staying at pretty much every Motel 6 you've ever stayed at. And by the way, we are by the train. So you guys have heard the train probably on this broadcast so far. The train comes by every 20 minutes yeah, I mean, or so. I think they said it's 63 or something, 68 times a day. I've never been by a said, railroad track that is ignore, this busy. I, I totally don't even hear it anymore. Oh, I can't ignore it. I mean, I, I'm you a very light earplugs, sleeper. my friend. I had them. Wait, wait, the hold first, on a wait, 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 wait. I have them, and they were locked in the truck the first <laughs> night. Well, before AAA got me out. You're, you're practically deaf. <laughs> How are you hearing all these I'm things? I'm not practically deaf. I know you think I'm deaf. Right, because... I just don't pay attention. Oh, okay. I hear everything. <laughs> I, I have really good hearing, and I hear... All sorts of stuff I wish I didn't hear. Selective hearing. It is very selective. What? (laughs) Did you hear me snoring? Because there's no way I wasn't snoring. Uh, You know what's funny is you weren't snoring. 
Really? I kid you not. Go and, me. And, and I have heard you snore. Yes. And it's loud. Yeah. You were not snoring. Friday I was night, stunned and delighted. Was <laughs> stunned and delighted. Yeah, but but you weren't the problem last night. It was the couple to the other side I, of you. I didn't hear. I literally was like knocked out. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. That's what uh, sleeping medication does. <laughs> liquid, liquid medication. It's now Sunday morning. You guys are listening to uh-huh. this Monday or in cool. the in the week, and uh, my kid's still asleep in our in our fancy space tent. Yeah. So uh, so I gave you a, a shift pod to use. Yeah. And how'd you like that shift pod, by the I way? I really liked it. and It's mine now. Just why you're not getting it back. <laughs> it's not coming back. Okay. No, it's really not coming back. What's to the left of you? There's no campers. What's to the right of you? No campers. We're literally the last campers here. Uh, yeah, it because sucks. everybody was told to leave, and yeah. well, because I sort of belong here now. I'm like, I'm just taking my time. Actually, <laughs> I want to go with Billy. Maybe around noon, we Who? go. Billy Cringe, Desert, <laughs> Desert Explorer. Explorer. Hold on, one more time with Ron. <laughs> Billy Cringe, Desert, Desert Explorer. Explorer. So he's got to do it. So uh, there's two. So Goffs has two airfields. I love how much Billy just it he makes, hate, it, oh my he, God, he, he it makes him so out, mad. Yeah. <laughs> so we're on the Camp Goffs proper. This is where the Army Camp Goffs was, and this was a logistics supply point during the uh, Desert Training Center days with Patton. Patton oversaw this whole area. And just north of here, about a mile, is a single runway airstrip for Camp Goffs. Hmm. And then out this way, about two and a half miles, is another, it's called the Goffs Intermediate Airfield. And there were no services there, but for uh, mail coming across from Arizona to California, it was an emergency landing spot. And it's a giant triangle with two runways. And so Billy and I haven't seen it. We've only seen it on the maps, and it looks like they're mostly grown over, but you can see the faint outlines. And so I'm like, well, while we're out here, once everybody leaves, let's go see if we can find those two things. So we're going to go do that. Okay. Bye, Lightning. <laughs> are we going to wrap the show? What are we doing? Yeah, I just told you, I have to go find air, airfields. So is this where we hit the jingle? Uh, I, you can interview Quinn and see when he wakes up and ask him how his weekend was or something. All right, this show is over, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> So, Holman, before we get into thanking Nissan, I will tell you that there is a bonus episode lined up. I went to Mitchell Caverns, and I spent almost two hours in the caverns with... I, I've been on a lot of tours in my life of all that sorts That place is of, awesome. And I'm telling you, this was the best tour guide of any tour and it's super I have, limited. I've ever taken. 30 people per day is all they do. Three days a week. Three days and a week. And you need reservations. And I got you in. And uh, you're welcome. Well, thank you. And I will tell you guys, if you're into Well, caves. I think it's interesting. Even if you're not into caves, I think it's still fascinating. So that's a bonus, and it will come. Uh, I don't know when we're going to drop that. Just check your feet, because it's, it's coming. All right, so uh, before the bonus comes out, and after we end the show, you got to thank our friends over at Nissan. So mm-hmm. Nissan uh, just re-upped another year with us. So you get to hear us talk about some awesome Nissan so products. High five, Nissan. One, two, three. High, high five. five. There's some awesome products like the Nissan Frontier, the Nissan Titan, and the Nissan Titan XT. Of course, the Nissan Titan and Titan XT come in the industry's best five-year, 100,000-mile warranty. Yes. Thank you, Lightning. And if that means that if you have been listening to the show from the beginning and you bought a Titan when we started, you are still under warranty. <laughs> still under warranty. I love that. So, so do you think – here's an idea. Maybe five-year, 100,000-mile isn't a good gauge. Maybe they should say you have a 300-episode warranty. 
and they could preload the, these Titans with. We've only missed one week, so we're pretty something damn like close, that. right? Yeah, okay. Yeah. So we they can just uh, preload with the Truck Show podcast, and when you run out of episodes, you also run out of warranty. <laughs> I like that. Yeah, that let's, I'll, I'll talk to the uh, the powers that be. We'll I don't think they're going to listen to you. No, they might. No, not no, listen no, to not me at all. You, hopefully, you guys listen to us. You head on down to your Nissan dealer, and you can check out the Nissan Titan and Titan XD and Frontier. Or you can build and price the Nissan Titan of your dreams over at NissanUSA.com. And if you've got a horrible case of pedal lag, pedal latency, throttle enrichment delay, whatever you want to call it, you hit the floor with your foot and your truck just doesn't do anything, you need a Banks Pedal Monster. So it is a patented device that gets rid of your pedal latency, increases your pedal sensitivity to your liking. Go to BanksPower.com, type in your year, make, and model, and see if we've got one for you. If you drive a turbo diesel, Oh my lord, you have no idea how bad you need one of these. And if your significant other drives a car, they might have an application for you as well. The Truck Show Podcast is a production of Motor Trend Group. This podcast was created and produced by Sean Holman and Jay Tillis with production elements by DJ Omar Khan. If you like what you've heard, please head over to Apple Podcasts and give us a five-star rating. And if you're a fan of the Truck Show Podcast, we encourage you to visit and patronize our sponsors. Billy Creech, Desert Explorer! One, two, three, Billy Creech! Desert Explorer! That's the one right there. <laughs> How do you feel? How do you feel about that, Billy? Important. <laughs> there you go. Hold on, I'm going yeah. back to eating your meat.